first going to do a quick introduction of our keynote speaker, Marianne Hitt. Um, she comes to us from Appalachia, from the group Appalachian Voices, and she's the executive director. And Appalachian Voices is a nonprofit organization that um, works primarily on environmental issues that are impacting the Appalachian Mountains, for example, mountaintop removal, which our video is going to be about tonight. Um, Marianne is also the Fellow of the Environmental Leadership Program and has worked for the Ecology Center and the Southern, Southern Appalachian Biodiversity Project. She was a recipient of the Lynn and Sandy Sargent Environmental Advocacy Award at the University of Montana and also has a Master's in Science in Environmental Studies from there. Um, we have brought her here partially uh, through the help of Global Exchange, which is uh, another nonprofit organization based in California that does work both on environmental issues, trade issues, um, and other issues of social impact, and we're happy to have their help as well. And we have a sign-up sheet for information for Global Exchange as well as a sign-up sheet for Surge outside in the hallway. Um, we're going to have, Marianne is going to speak for a little while, and then we're going to have a period for questions and answer, and uh, yeah, we'll wrap up at the end. So thanks everyone again for coming, and so we do. Hi everyone. Um, well, I had a PowerPoint presentation for you, and I'm not going to be able to present that, so and I, since there are a few, not too many of you here, I'm going to shorten my remarks and improvise here, so bear with me. Um, <laughs> a little flustered, I'm sorry. Um, Appalachian Voices is a regional environmental group based in Boone, North Carolina, and we bring people together to solve the environmental problems that are having the biggest impact on the central and southern Appalachian mountains. Air pollution, mountaintop removal, coal mining, which I'll talk to you about today, and uh, and um, also the loss of our native forests. And we publish a newspaper called the Appalachian Voice. We print it six times a year. We do 75,000 copies of each issue. And we distribute them throughout the mountains through a network of volunteers. Um, clearly, there are big decisions being made in our region right now about climate and energy. And I think we all think about climate change as this sort of large uh, issue that maybe is a little too big for us to really think about how we can have an impact on it. But there are decisions that are being made in this region right now that you all can influence. And specifically, those are the construction of new coal-fired power plants and the way that we're mining the coal to fuel those power plants. So that's what I want to talk to you all about today. Um, Fifteen years ago, I arrived at the University of Tennessee as a student. And there were no environmental majors on the campus, and there was no student environmental group on the campus. We actually, someone put up a flyer for the first meeting and so a few of us went, and we all were sitting around there for, you know, 10 minutes, and no one stood up to run the meeting, and finally we said, is anyone going to run this meeting? And no one said, no one was in charge. So we said, well, I guess we have to, you know, take charge of it ourselves, and we'd set up the next meeting, and I went and I found the person who had hung up the flyer, and it was this graduate student, and he said, I'm just too busy, I don't have time to do this anymore, but I just wanted to hang up the flyer in the hopes that some people would show up and decide to take, take it on and make it their own. And so from there, we, we recreated the group as students promoting environmental action in Knoxville, or SPEAK. 
And Speak has gone on to do some amazing things, which I'll come back to tell you about at the end. Um, but, you know, we campaigned for everything from closing the hole in the ozone layer to stopping the construction of nuclear power plants. And the thing that I came to realize towards the end of my time there was that where we could have the biggest impact was on our campus. And so a, sen a fellow senior and I, as our senior project, wrote an environmental blueprint for the university and recommended a whole host of policies, including changing the recycling program, changing the way the energy policies were, or the energy consumption was, was going on, changing the landscaping. And most of the things we recommended actually have, have gotten into place in just 10 years, which I'll come back to at the end. Um, for those of you here who are students, you're obviously at a very similar point in your lives. Um, the big difference is that the world is much more interconnected, which I'm sure you're sick of hearing about, but it's true. And we are now finally at a moment of nationally realizing that we're in the midst of one of the biggest environmental crises um, in the history of the human race. So here we are in this region, and we have some decisions to make. And I want to first start off with mountaintop removal, since I don't have my uh, slides. What I'm just going to do is show you this film here, and the part of this was to show on a DVD, which is not with us. So I'm just going to show it to you on YouTube here in our in our uh, exciting new world as your introduction to the uh, issue of mountaintop removal. It's environmental right. That's all you can call it. They've just destroyed our way of life completely. Everything that the mountains meant to us has been destroyed. Since this land got disturbed by the coal and timber companies, we don't have part of anything left. Just southwest of our nation's capital, one of the greatest human rights and environmental tragedies in American history is taking place at this very moment. Mountaintop removal is a form of coal mining that's designed from the start to take the coal miner out of coal mining. The companies use explosives to blow up the tops of the mountains and they dump the rock into the valleys, totally burying the streams. What's left behind is a moonscape. blowing up, literally blowing off the top of a mountain in order to get at the coal and the, all, of the, all of the debris and everything else, the whole top of the mountain goes down in the valley, dams up rivers, affects communities. I mean, it's just, it's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's so deeply wrong that it, we have to do something about it. When they level the mountains, they have to have something to do with uh, everything other than the coal. The leftover debris is put in to the headwaters of the hollow. And it changed the velocity and the volume of water that comes through my property here. And we've always had a small stream run through here. It's named Big Branch Creek. It's always been a little tiny stream, though. And it, through the manipulations of the headwaters of the stream, I've been flooded now seven times. In 2001, uh, the bridge washed out, and we repaired it 
and then it washed out again. Uh, so I lost two bridges. Um, and at this point, uh, we have no access. My son called and he said, Dad, he said, if you're getting home, you better come on. He said, it's starting to flood up here. So we got down to the mouth of the hollow and this 15-year-old uh, boy met us and he said, you can't get up a holler. He said, it's flooded. In a matter of an hour, this 15-year-old boy was drowned. And with him, uh, his neighbor, a 35-year-old lady, they stepped across a little ditch going into their yard that normally was six or eight inches deep, and they were swept away. We spent the night together, all of us huddled around in this house, and it was a night of unbelievable sorrow. This isn't just a regional issue. Because people from all across America use electricity that's at least partly generated by mountaintop removal coal but it's a small amount that could easily come from cleaner sources of energy. Instead of going under the mountain and getting the coal, they just take the mountain off of the coal, and they scoop out all that coal in that seam, and they go on down to the next seam, and push all the overburden over the mountains into the valleys, and they get that seam. And as I said, there's eight or nine seams here they got, and each time it's more dirt and rock come down over the valleys. They say it's uh, more economical. They take a handful of men with equipment and accomplish in a matter of months what an underground mine would take years with a lot of men to do. It's providing cheaper energy for our society, a cheaper cost, big profits for coal companies, a few people are getting jobs, but it's a one-shot deal. And those mountains are, and those streams are not going to really recover. And uh, it's breaking covenant with God and creation. The streams that go by me here right now are the headwaters of the streams all over the eastern United States. And it, whether uh, people realize it or not, everyone's downstream from this. We, we, uh, the planet shares water, you know, and uh, if there's one drop of it polluted, then all of it's polluted. All of this is happening in a region that's a national treasure, home to bluegrass music and the Blue Ridge Mountains, and it's also home to more species of plants and animals than almost anywhere else on Earth outside of the tropical rainforest. It's the worst thing that has ever happened to this state. And it's not even being discussed in the political debates. I'm here to mourn the stupidity and the ignorance that says coal is West Virginia. West Virginia's mountains. West Virginia is not coal. Coal fields, uh, as they're called sometimes, in the southern Appalachians, some of the poorer areas in the country, uh, and yet some of the greatest wealth has been extracted. There's something wrong. To know that me and my children have been sacrificed. Uh, for the wealth and richer, riches of other people is very frustrating. Uh, but at the same time, 
I have to direct my anger and do something about it so that my children have a possibility of a future. It's a national sacrifice, and, and as I see it, in a sense, a cultural and uh, economic theft, uh, at least a con that they're trying to perpetuate. It has to change, and it, it, it will change on an individual basis. Everybody has to stand up and fight it. Everybody coming together and voicing their concern together, actually a communal effort really is what it is, through Appalachian Voices can uh, make a difference and will make a difference in this fight, but it's definitely going to take a concerted effort. Growing up in East Tennessee, I thought the mountains would be there forever, but in my lifetime, more than 450 mountains have already been destroyed, and if we don't act, hundreds more mountains will be lost forever. To stop this, we have to remove the cloak of secrecy that's allowed it to go on. And that's why we created ilovemountains.org. Thanks to new technologies like Google Earth, the coal companies can no longer hide the massive scale of destruction that they're causing. Together, we can meet America's energy needs and protect our nation's natural and cultural heritage. But it won't happen without you. Please help us spread the word. And thank you. How many years can a mountain exist before it's washed to the sea? How many years can some people exist before they're allowed to be free? How many times can a man turn his head pretending he just doesn't see? The answer, my friend, is blowing the wind. I think no matter um, what aspect of environmental issues you're most concerned about, that mountaintop removal touches on those issues. It's an environmental justice issue. The people who live in the places where mountaintop removal is taking place um, have some of the highest levels of poverty in the country, the highest levels of unemployment, the lowest per capita income, the lowest levels of high school completion rates. And while in 1950 there were about 150,000 coal miners in West Virginia, there are now about 15,000. So clearly this is not the great economic boon for the people of Appalachia that you might be led to believe um, from the coal industry. It's also an environmental health issue. Uh, some of the videos that you saw show those sludge dams. There are dozens and dozens of those all throughout the mountains. Some of them are bigger than the Hoover Dam. One of them is among the five biggest dams on Earth. There are earthen dams they are holding back billions with a B gallons of toxic sludge. And there's one in southern West Virginia that's right above an elementary school called Marthport that has 250 kids in the school. And last summer, Ed Wiley, who's the grandfather of one of the kids in the school and a former coal miner, walked from Charleston, West Virginia, to Washington, D.C. to try to raise awareness about the school, to try to move it to a safe location in the community. Because the kids are getting sick. There's a coal silo right beside the school where they load the coal into the trains. 
And that creates a lot of coal dust, which is what gives you black lung disease. And so the kids are getting sick, the teachers are getting sick, the principals have been turning over because they're getting sick. And this is all happening in the headwaters of the drinking water supply of millions of Americans. So it's not just the people in the coal fields whose health is at risk, it's ultimately quite a few of us. Um, it's also a biodiversity issue. This is happening in one of the global hotspots of biodiversity, especially freshwater biodiversity. Um, there, are, there are some nature conservancy maps that show you know, global biodiversity hotspots all across the world. And in North America, there are only a couple. And one of them is in this very region, and it's most known for the freshwater aquatic species. Crayfish, salamanders, some of those taxa are diverse here in ways that they're not anywhere else on the planet. And this is all in the exact same place where mountaintop removal is at its peak. Southern West Virginia, East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, and Southwest Virginia. It's also a energy consumption and policy issue. The biggest user of electricity for mountaintop removal coal is the state of North Carolina. It's not the state of West Virginia. It's not the state of Kentucky. It's not the state of Tennessee or Virginia. Um, our estimates are, while well, 50% of our electricity in this country comes from coal, somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 to 5% comes from mountaintop removal coal. So while we're using quite a bit of it here, we're probably using it right now to show you that little movie. Um, it's, as I say in the video, it could easily, it's something that could easily come from cleaner sources of energy. It's also a climate issue. Um, there's a great book called Big Coal by Jeff Goodell, and he makes the case in that book, it uh, just came out last year, that he calls coal a giant carbon anchor that's slowing down our nation's transition to truly clean and renewable forms of energy. And we are at a point right now in this country where we're looking at building 150 new coal-fired power plants. And if we do that, the impetus and the reason for investing in really clean and renewable energy is just going to be delayed for another generation while those coal-fired power plants are cranking away. And I would argue that one of the ways we can get a handle on this and find a leverage point into the, the bigger issues of coal is, is mountaintop removal because it's getting quite a bit of attention. Um, and finally, you know, I grew up in Tennessee. Um, I live in Virginia both the states where mountaintop removal is happening. And these are mountains. These are the, some of the oldest mountains on Earth. And when they're blown up, you can't put them back. A mountain doesn't grow back. A mountain doesn't, uh, you know, they, they, they don't sort of pile the rock back up and reform the mountain. And the reclaimed sites, they don't look like the diverse hardwood forests that we love in the Appalachians. They look like anemic golf courses. And the, 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 the laws that allow them to do the mountaintop removal uh, requ require that they reclaim the site with some sort of commercial use, but what's ended up happening in reality is less than 1% of them have any sort of commercial development on them, and the vast majority have some Japanese grass and autumn planted on them, and then they're just left. And, and the diverse hardwood forest that were once there will never, ever come back. And ultimately, I think, as a society, that's a moral and an ethical question about what right we have to blow up over 470 of the oldest mountains on Earth. To do to people like Maria uh, the things that we are doing, and to leave that legacy for our children. 
And then obviously if we build a new generation of coal-fired power plants in this region, that does not bode well for the future of the mountains, and it also doesn't bode well for the climate. And as much as you may hear about the carbon sequestration technology where we'll someday be able to put it under the ground, um, it's very expensive, it's decades out into the future, and it has never been tested on a large scale. And for many of the coal-fired power plants that are proposed in the South, the, the industry has already said, because of the geology, that carbon sequestration, if it ever becomes viable, is not going to be an option for those plants, like the cliffside plant right outside of Charlotte. So we're, again, at this crossroads where if we build this new generation of coal-fired power plants, we're locking in another generation of devastated landscapes and communities in Appalachia and spreading closer to Knoxville, closer to Nashville, closer, it's, 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 it's spreading. And also, it does not bode well for the climate. Everyone here, I think, has a huge opportunity to influence these decisions. Um, universities are some of the biggest consumers of energy, obviously, and are great leverage points for starting to shift how energy is used in this country. If it doesn't start here, it's hard to imagine where it will start. Um, as Dr. Schlesinger mentioned, since the, since the first Earth Day, since prior to that, um, students have led all of the really effective grassroots movements in this country, from the Civil Rights Movement, to the first Earth Day, to the anti-apartheid movement in the 80s. And I believe the same is going to be true of the effort to stop global warming. I think that it is it's going to be driven by and led by this generation of students. Also, you all have your finger on the pulse of the culture in a way that even I, as much as I hate to admit it, do not anymore. Um, it's, everything is changing so quickly that that has never been more important. And if, you know, I can show you some of the things on Isle of Mountains if you want, since my little presentation isn't isn't up and running, but basically, with I Love Mountains, actually maybe I will just, since we're winging it here, oops, people will show you, I might as well give you a quick little tour, there it is, so this is our site, and a couple of the features, and this is again, this is just coming back to why it's so important, I think, to have young people in leadership positions on this issue, um, this is the National Memorial for the Mountains, this is a, something that we created that's the centerpiece of I Love Mountains that uses Google Earth to show the locations of all of the mountains that have been destroyed. And if, actually now I'm just kind of glad that it's happened because I could show you all this stuff. It's really kind of cool. Um, this is one of the mountains. Every mountain has its own page. And uh, the mountains have um, pictures, they have video, they have audio. And so you can, and actually this one, have, has before and after imagery that we created um, so you can see what the mountain looked like before and after mountaintop removal. Um, it has this page, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Our Prayers for the Mountains. Uh, that's, that's my mother-in-law. <laughs> She's a minister. And these are prayers that we featured when we launched the site, and these are prayers that people have sent us. Um, there's quite a few of them. And the Spread the Word page uses this software called Forward Track, and you can see all the people who've signed up on I Love Mountains, and you can see it's on the bottom, second, third, fourth, and fifth generation. So it's showing you 
um, basically the most active people and signed people up. And you know, you can click on Sandra and you can see Sandra is going to show up in blue. And then you can see her, the people she signed up, and then the people that they signed up, and then the people that they signed up. And um, you know, then we have the video, which is on YouTube. We have a photo gallery, which is a software called Flickr, which is a photo sharing software. So, and then we have a, a page here. The last thing I'll show you, the high cost of coal that has some nationally known individuals talking about how mountaintop removal fits into the national energy picture. Um, so, again, the point being that the world is changing so quickly, but it's offering us all of these amazing opportunities to bring these issues to people in ways that we never could before. And just to give you the final example of this, um, last week Google put the National Memorial for the Mountains into Google Earth. So if anyone in the world goes into Google Earth, there's a little box called Featured Content. You go into there and you can find the National Memorial for the Mountains. And all the 200 million people all around the world now can see the National Memorial for the Mountains in Google Earth. And for a small organization like Appalachian Voices, with an issue that's just been struggling and struggling and struggling to break through and get the attention of the nation, all of these tools provide us with a megaphone that we did not have five years ago and that have taken the issue places we never ever thought it could have gone. And that is what having young people working with you does because you don't know about those things if you don't work with young people all the time. And we have a lot of really brilliant young people on our staff who are the main ones kind of behind all of this. So finally, your universities can leverage our big leverage points for energy use. Students lead powerful grassroots movements. And students know what is up in ways that the rest of us do not in a very, very rapidly changing world. So let me close by telling you then um, what happened at the University of Tennessee in 10 years since I left there, which is hard to believe that I'm well, never mind. Um, <laughs> the, the, they formed a, a faculty committee. And remember, there's no student environmental group. There are no environmental majors. There was no Earth Day. Anything. Nothing was happening when, when I started 15 years ago. They formed a committee. They passed campus environmental policy. They passed a student ballot referendum for a student green energy fee that the students passed on to themselves. And that was approved, and so the University of Tennessee is now one of the top five buyers of green power in the South. They hired a recycling coordinator full-time to improve the recycling all over campus. They created an ongoing official Make Orange Green program that's always looking for opportunities to green the campus. They had a campus-wide environmental semester. And I just got this in an email a couple of days ago from my advisor there. He told me the Faculty Senate, Graduate Student Senate, and Student Government Association have all recently passed resolutions urging the administration to adopt a policy of not buying surface mine coal. Speak is doing a press conference this morning on the Don't Shop Rocky Top campaign. So considering all of this has just happened in 10 years, I'm not only 
I'm confident that you all can do this on your campuses. I'm confident that you already are. Um, and so what I would like to do is plant a couple of seeds of ways that you can help with our mountaintop removal effort. And I'm going to grab a couple of sign-up sheets and pass them around. If you would like to keep in touch with us and have us keep you posted, um, you can sign up on the sign-up sheets. Um, you can also go to I Love Mountains. And look, since we're having a live demonstration, we can, we can all spread the word. Uh, who would like to spread the word? Someone want to volunteer to spread the word? <laughs> can you spell your name for me? Okay, so there you go. Now you're signed up. And then you have this invitation form here. And you can send it to your friends. And you can click here and you can see your personal page. And there you are, Allison. <laughs> so everybody, I hope you will sign up on I Love Mountains with us. Um, third, are, are, there any, are there any Duke students here? Any? Do you know, there's this program here called the Stand Back Internship Program. And if you know about it, spread the word about that. Uh, we, it's a program for Duke students to intern and be paid to do so with environmental groups all over North Carolina. And we usually have five slots available to us, and we often don't get enough people applying. So help us spread the word about that. And finally, if you're fired up and you're motivated about mountaintop removal, you might want to consider what the students did at the University of Tennessee and think about passing a policy or a resolution on your campus asking your university to not buy mountaintop removal or surface mine coal. Again, we're at a very incredible moment in history. James Hansen, the top climate scientist at NASA, one of the top climate scientists in the world, says we have 10 years to make serious changes or we could face irrevocable damage from climate change. And it's scary, but it's also very, very exciting time to be engaged in environmental issues. And the decisions we make in this region about whether or not we're going to build coal-fired power plants and how we're going to mine coal and whether or not we're going to put any common sense restrictions on the mining are two of the most concrete, immediate, and relevant things we can do to actually affect the amount of carbon dioxide that goes into the air out of our region. However you decide to engage in this issue in your life, in your organizations, on your campus, it's going to provide you with skills that you can use for the rest of your life. How to raise money, how to talk to the media, how to talk to elected officials, how to organize, how to get people to pay attention to something that you care about, how to change the world. It will also make a real difference in energy consumption. It could tip the balance on the climate issue. And it could even save some of the oldest mountains on Earth. So whatever you do and whatever you do after this in your lives, I think it's most important, as my final point, that you carry your passion for the environment with you. I think the only way that we're going to fundamentally make the kind of transformations we need to make to make in our society to turn the climate issue around 
is that people are carrying their passion for this issue into every sector. Doctors, artists, teachers, veterinarians, uh, social workers, whatever you're doing, you have an influence over what gets consumed and how it gets consumed, over policies about resource use and energy use. And it's people in every sector of society taking this with them wherever they go that's ultimately going to make a difference. You don't just have to be someone like me who's doing this, uh, you know, 80 hours a week. <laughs> a final quote to leave you with from the great visionary designer Buckminster Fuller. You never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. It's a great privilege to speak with you all this evening, and I hope you have a wonderful conference. Thank you very much for having me. Any questions?